justice is not selective. And if we really want to, to fight for justice, I, I have this saying that justice has become sexy, but no one wants to do the hard work of courting and dating. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. everybody. Welcome back to episode five of season two of the Center for Congregations podcast. I'm Matt Burke, the Northeast Director and Education Director for the Center. And with me is Ben Tapper. Hey, Ben. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Today, our interview is with Pastor Bede Hilsodo from Iglesia Hermandad Cristiana in Indianapolis. And so we're really excited to talk with her, and you'll get to hear that interview in a little bit. But we're going to talk on the front end here about multiculturalism in congregations, multiculturalism in the United States. And Ben, as you reflect on this topic and how you've interfaced with congregations in your work, what kind of things have come up around multiculturalism? Or what have you heard or what have you seen as some of the challenges or some of the opportunities? Yeah, so two things come up. And one for me is just a reminder of why we have some of the commitments we currently have here at the center. One of our commitments is to continue to expand the types of congregations and clergy and lay leaders that we are interfacing with. Historically, we have we've served a lot of predominantly white mainline Christian congregations. Even here in 2020, I was just aware of how much I'm not necessarily aware of day in and day out as I'm doing the specific roles of my job, how much I'm not thinking about. One example that I've really been holding is I've been thinking about the grants that we offer and thinking about the types of needs they typically meet and wondering if the grants that we offer, if the type of resource consulting that I typically do day in and day out, if it meets some of the more foundational and fundamental needs of some of our Latinx laying clergy leaders. You know, like some folks are struggling a lot with just the general anxiety and risks that are associated with being undocumented or serving a large undocumented population. And that's not something a resource grant, at least as they're constructed today, can really do a lot to help with. So I just found myself reflecting on the limitations of some of the work that I find myself doing and and some of the resources that I find myself interfacing with and wondering how that can be remedied. Yeah, I've often heard it said that being part of dominant culture in any culture for the United States, it's, you know, predominantly white culture. It's like asking a fish, you know, what the water's like. And the fish is like, what are you talking about? Yeah. What's what's water? <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, you're swimming in a very specific cultural context. And I think that's a good comment that I am white. For those of you who haven't checked out the website and <laughs> seen my picture, uh, I am a white male. And it's one of the things that I've been trying to reflect on in my life and in my work, both at the center and, and even outside of the center is what are those things that I'm not paying attention to, those things that I don't have to navigate because I have been raised in dominant culture? And I think that's a great question for all of us to ask, whether or not we interface on a regular basis with people from other ethnicities or backgrounds, just trying to pay attention to the fact of what aspects of our lives do we take for granted and how might other people experience those aspects of life differently than what we do. 
And there are just so many different ways based on socioeconomic status, based on gender, gender identity, based on country of origin. All of those factors really can change how, as you'll hear in the interview, even a trip to the doctor might affect someone. And so just trying to be cognizant of that, I think, is really important. Yeah. And then, you know, being cognizant of the ways in which Latinx leaders, clergy members, et cetera, might interface with the Center for Congregations, right? So we recently, within the last year or so, have worked to translate our resource grant applications into Spanish, which is something we hadn't done before. You know, so something so basic and simple as that could be a barrier for those congregations to learning about us, receiving the grant funds that we have available. Small things, just like looking at the different touch points that we currently have with different racial and ethnic groups and wondering what barriers we have allowed to remain in place that could be fairly easily remedied. And I think we're starting to do that, and I'm excited about that. But this conversation in particular really got me thinking more deeply about the barriers that I may not be aware of as of yet. Yeah, and our world is changing quite a bit, and the demographics are changing. And this stat may not be true, so I'm putting this out there with (laughs) claiming that it may not be true. But I did hear it from two different sources at two different times, and both of these were people that I trust, that said the town of Goshen, Indiana, which is a mid-sized kind of rural community, is about 30% Spanish-speaking at this point, and the K-12 school system, or I think K-5, through about 50% of the kids attending K-5 through are native Spanish speakers, which is a pretty astonishing statistic. Not something that I thought would be the case at this point. I mean, I know that the demographics have been changing and the, the mix of population has been changing over time, but that's a pretty stark difference from what I had thought would be out there. And, you know, for congregations that are living up in that area, that means that there are a lot of people that have a very different cultural experience than you might. And so just being able to think through that and pay attention to that, I think, is really important. And according to a random page of the United States Census Bureau's website, those statistics are correct, Matt. (laughs) Just thought you'd like to know that. We do our own fact checking. That's wonderful. (laughs) Thanks, Ben. Real time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And transparently, one of the things that we're trying to do with this podcast is have a diversity of representation on the podcast because we hope, number one, that some people who don't hear their voices often represented will hear their voices represented here and will feel included in the life of congregations in Indiana. And then also, if you are from the more dominant culture, hearing the stories of those other voices, it's a whole different thing to hear somebody's experiences and hear them telling their story than it is to talk about things at a very high theoretical level. And so it's just important for us to understand what's happening in the society around us so that we can react appropriately based on our faith tradition and the ways that we look at hospitality, the way that we view loving the other. We need to understand the experiences of the other. And so we're just really hoping to bring those experiences to you through some of the stories of congregational leaders on the Center for Congregations podcast. Absolutely. And because the other is never as far away as we think they are. You know, you just gave the example of Goshen, Indiana. On paper, you would have never guessed that Goshen is as diverse as it is, right? But it is. And it's not just that it's rural and a historically white part of the state, but it's also a very Anabaptist town. Like, Goshen is the Mennonite capital of the Midwest. <laughs> it's like Goshen, Kansas City, and like Harrisonburg, Pennsylvania. And so you just, you wouldn't expect such a confluence of differences and different people, yet it exists. And if you're 
leading a congregation in Northeast Indiana or Central Indiana, you might be a trip to the grocery store away from encountering folks that speak a different language or come from a different country or just grew up with a very different cultural mindset and understanding of the way the world works. And so it's important to at least have some additional exposure to these points of view, especially if we are thinking about what it means to not only do ministry within the context of our congregations, but to then also go out into the community and meet the needs. And frankly, we can't understand what the needs are that we're trying to meet unless we hear stories and get to know the voices of those that we might consider other than ourselves. Yeah, that's a great point, Ben. So why don't we jump right into the interview? And next up, you'll hear from Pastor Berejil Soto. Welcome back to the Center for Congregations podcast, everyone. We are excited to have Pastor Bere Hil Soto join us this week. She's a pastor at Iglesia Hermandad Cristiana here in Indianapolis. And I've also joined by my coworker, Kate White, who's going to be sitting in on this interview in place of Matt Burke. So welcome, everyone. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Good to be here. Bere, one of the reasons that we wanted to invite you on the podcast this week is to talk about what differences there might be in being a leader at a multilingual and multicultural congregation. So I'm wondering if you can just start out by speaking to who your congregation is, what they're about, and what unique challenges and opportunities you've noticed so far as you've been the pastor there. Yeah, so at Iglesia Hermandad Cristiana, we have a history of 30 years of service and ministry in the city of Indianapolis. And Iglesia Hermandad Cristiana is a multicultural and multilingual because we do Spanish, English, and then the all variations of Spanish that come from the many different places that we come from. And we also speak Spanglish or linguistic because we don't speak either or. So it's, it's a fun conversation when you are around people at our church. And so, as I was saying, we are a multicultural, meaning that, yes, we come from different Latin American countries, but the Latin American is not just one culture. We have people from Venezuela, people from Mexico, Puerto Rico, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Dominican Republic, Panama, and those are the ones that I can think of at the top of my mind. Um, I think that's enough. Yeah. <laughs> And it makes it so fun too, and so rich also for fellowship. So all of my friends, when we have fellowship and I invite them because at the end of service, we just have delicious dishes of all over the Latin American countries. And so we are also, as multicultural, we are also kind of a young age congregation. Maybe the average of the adult age in our congregation might be somewhere around the 45. We also have quite a little bit of children. Out of the average of 70 people on a given Sunday, 20 or 20-some are kids under the age of 12 or 13. And so it's very different to maybe any other mainline Eurocentric congregation where children are not as present. So yeah, kind of like a big picture. That's a little bit... 
Yeah, thank you for giving us that broad strokes picture of who your congregation is. As you walk with the members of that community day in and day out, are there challenges or, or what comes up day in and day out that you feel like is probably unique to their lived experience that, again, if you're a pastor of a white mainline congregation, you may not face the same way? <sighs> not so long ago, I was actually preaching at my seminary alma mater at Christian Theological Seminary. And in that sermon, I remember having said that there were, there have been times in my life that I've really been jealous of my colleagues that pastor what I would say conventional congregations that are not as complex as mine, whereas they can just prepare uh, their duties or responsibilities during the week is preparing Bible study, doing some pastoral care, doing some sermon prep, maybe some trustees meeting and board meeting. I have to do that and go to parents-teachers conference because there are not as many translators in the school where their children go to or because the parents simply don't really trust given previous experiences, don't trust the translation that is provided. I also have to go with them to their medical appointments because they are afraid that something, you know, may happen to them and they may be targeted given their immigration status and their immigration journey. I'm also the emergency contact of a lot of them. And I've gotten calls at two in the morning or 11 o'clock at night saying I've been stopped by the police officer and I don't know what to do. And so there is a difference in the ministry that I get to do on a day-by-day basis, yeah. Bere, thank you so much for sharing that. That sounds like a very rich experience, but also quite a lot on your shoulders as a pastor. I wonder, have you seen from other colleagues who might have a similar scenario, bilingual, multilingual congregations? Is that typical of a pastor who serves those populations? To be honest, I don't have many colleagues that serve here in Indianapolis in in this same scenario. But it's interesting. Even my best friend from back home in Mexico, one day she told me, she said, Bere, you do a lot. Like our pastor here does not have to do all that. Like, is that because you have to do it or because you choose to do it? And I think it's both and. When I started pastoring this congregation, I was aware that if the congregation was going to grow, not only in numbers, but in spiritual and emotional health, they needed also someone that they could trust and that could walk with them and pastor them as a flock. And that comes with that extra load that at times, as at some point in previous conversations, I was talking with Ben and I, I've told him I've had to learn my boundaries. And it's been so hard because I know that at times people really need me, but other times there's been this codependency of, I need you to need me because I'm your pastor and I can help you and look how good things I can do for you. And breaking with that is hard. But also understanding that systemically in society today, a person without the fabulous magic nine-digit number of a social security can go so far in life. And then if you add 
the lack of accessibility, language accessibility in society and the fear of the police, the fear of other systems. That long answer maybe to the question, but I think that it's a both end. It's something that I get to choose, but at the same time, I have to. Thank you so much for that candid answer. It leads me to another question of perhaps some of our societal social services, we might sense that, oh, we're meeting that need. We have Spanish services or we've translated this document into Spanish or, you know, oh, they're all Spanish speakers. Surely they understand each other. And I'm thinking that these are probably misconceptions that we have used to pat ourselves on the back to say, wow, we are really good at meeting their needs. But can you speak to maybe some of the gaps that there are in our communities in meeting those needs, as well as how the church sometimes fills those needs like you've already discussed? Yeah, I think that a lot of the times intentions are good, but there are no follow-ups. And so that's when I think that the system and many of the social services system fall through the cracks. They have good intentions and they get forms or things translated, but instead of investing on certified translator or a native speaking Spanish person to translate the forms, they literally may just copy paste on Google and get the job done. And I myself have gone to doctor's appointments and because they see my ID and see the name, they assume that I want the form in Spanish. And so they give me the Spanish form. I start filling it and I'm like, oh, and I start crossing things and leave comments like, hey, you could, you know, change this question or this is a better way to do it. And the church, I think, as a congregation, we tend to say, our name says it, that we are an hermandad, a fellowship of brotherhood, siblinghood, sisterhood. So more than a church, we are a family. So we depend on each other. And it's been really nice for me to see that if there is a medical appointment or a court appointment that they have to go and they feel that they need to go with someone with privileges that they may feel safer going with. If I can't, there are certain folks within the church that they are willing to go and do that. But I've seen the difference, for example, in, in the hospital or medical appointments. Whenever I go with my parishioners and if I am not wearing, even though I go as their pastor and I introduce myself as the pastor of, of such and such, but if I'm not wearing my collar or my clerical shirt, the treatment is so different than when I go wearing my clerical shirt. They immediately, they they do not even wait for me to go and ask for assistance. They ask me, hey, can we help you? And, you know, the connection is made. So the symbols and the signs that we literally clothe on are, are really powerful. And then again, I, sometimes I have disadvantages depending on the places where I am, because it doesn't matter that I am a, an ordained minister with a master's degree. I'm still a woman. And I'm still from Mexico and I still have a quote unquote accent, even though everybody has an accent, but. 
all have accents. This is going to be news to someone, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Bede, I'm wondering, you know, we went to the same seminary, and so I'm going to ask you a question that I recognize could potentially be dangerous. Just know that as you're answering candidly, we can cut out anything you want to cut out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so having said that, you know, I'm thinking about the many hats that you wear as a pastor in this congregation. And I'm wondering the ways in which you felt like your seminary experience equipped you for this work and the ways in which maybe it fell short and didn't do enough to equip you for the work that you stepped into. Yeah. I think that getting my ministerial preparation and theological education at a predominantly white institution that historically has been a predominantly white institution. As I said, the intentions are good, but the follow-ups fall through the crack. I think that there were very good and great classes, which tended to be the optionals. What's it called? The Electives. uh, Yes, the electives mm-hmm. that gave me actually a lot of self-work on my on my own image as a pastor and idea as a pastor and as a woman and as an immigrant and person of color. But I think that the education, and I don't have many experience other than my master's here in the United States, but from what I hear in my experience, I think education tends to be predominantly white-based with the idea that the norm is the norm for everyone and that church means church for everyone. And that's not the case. Even within the predominantly white society, the context is so different from church to another. And I think that when we try to box our education and our theology or our ministry in the way that we teach it, maybe it would have been better to be exposed to different sides of ministry, to hear stories from other people that are not just the poster and stock images that we can find online of ministry. But yeah. One of the other things that's coming to mind is about the kind of social political context of our times and how that might put a unique pressure on a congregation or community such as yours. And so as we, uh, you know, at the time of this recording, we are six to eight weeks before the election. And so by the time people are listening to this, the election will have already happened. And what I'm trying to ask, though, is that what have you learned about leading in this time, especially within the unique pressures that have been placed upon your community members? Again, I came to the United States in 2012, so I don't have as many experience to compare historically. However, Even between 2012 and 2016, when the political climate changed drastically all around the United States and impacted the way that people view also their faith and spirituality as part of the social witness or not, there's a lot of fear, at least in my community. And sadly, it's been a narrative that has tried to embed the idea of we are against each other, everyone. So, you know, there's always a social ladder in which there's always someone below you. And even within my community, they try to put us against the Black community. And, you know, oh, Black people are gangsters and they just sell drugs. And and so it's been hard for me, as even as myself, married to a black man and bringing that experience 
of my own to the congregation, try to challenge them. And at the same time, trying to realize that this is not really just coming from them, but it needs to be challenged because it is in them now. And it's like a virus. <laughs> Hello. It gets on you and, and, and you have the capability of transmitting it to others. And so it's been also beautiful in that way how even people in my congregation have embraced their identities of being Black and Latino. Also being aware that our faith cannot be constrained during now this COVID season. We've even witnessed it even more, but that our faith cannot be constrained to the walls of the church. And so before all this pandemic started happening and my ministry started taking even more responsibilities, but I used to be somewhat involved in social protests in our city. And I would always invite people from my church and I say, hey, there's going to be this protest against police brutality or against detention centers or against, you know, profiling or healthcare or whatever. And it was surprisingly that now that all this happened during the pandemic and when Dreshawn Reed was assassinated recently, I got to see through social media that a couple of my young adults were there in the protest. And I was like, if I have not done anything, like this is just great. And trying to see them that we are all one. It's something that has been a work in progress, but I can see glimpses of the fruits. But yeah, this political season, and hopefully, as you say, by the time that People are listening to this and we are listening to ourselves. We have a new precedent and a new wave of, yeah, restart, maybe. We can hope. We can hope. Yeah, Barry, I'm smiling just because of your hopefulness and the way that you've been encouraging your community to be so engaged in a space that maybe people wouldn't expect you to be supporting other communities who are experiencing these harmful, harmful things, again, with some of the racial unrest. I'm curious, as we hear from some of our Black brothers and sisters, their congregations, they've been surprised to hear initial silence from their brothers and sisters from white congregations. And I can only imagine how hurtful that might be. I wonder, do you have anything you would want to share with maybe some of your white brothers and sisters or black brothers and sisters as it relates to issues that might impact your community, particularly detention centers? How can we help and how can we be caring of what you might be experiencing? Yeah, I have an, ex- uh, like a, I was going to say an example, but it's actually a memory, very vivid. It was during the time that RIFRA was going to pass or not pass in our state. Which, for those listening, that's the Religious Freedom and Reformation Act, correct? Yes. Thank you, Ben. And, you know, all the implications that that was going to have on our siblings of the LGBTQ plus community. And I remember there was this protest and demonstration at the Capitol on a Friday. And the following week, there was going to be another one for when the state was also, the city was lowering the cap for refugees and asylum seekers. It was one week of difference. RIFRA demonstration had thousands. The capital was full of mostly white people. 
The week after, I am there again. And we're a few hundred, if so. And that really, like, and I even remember it really breaks my heart because why can we see one fight and not see that this is not a fight. This is the fight against the system that is trying to divide us into thinking that this is your fight. This is the black people fight. This is the LGBTQ fight. This is the immigrants fight. And not that this is just humanity against the horrible oppression of racism and capitalism. But I think that what I would say to my siblings that are not Latino, Latinx, justice is not selective. And if we really want to, to fight for justice, I, I have this saying that justice has become sexy, but no one wants to do the hard work of courting and dating. We just want to say that justice is sexy and we want to have a yard sign outside our church. But when the moment for putting in, into actions and, and concrete, tangible ways that justice, we lose that opportunity because we are afraid of losing the power that we have, losing the privileges, losing the connections that give us power and resources. And that goes, you know, for black, brown, white, as Cheska League said, pocket adults, like that goes for all of us. We just tend to think that justice is selective and that everybody needs to fight their fight. I love that concept of courting justice. I think that is such powerful imagery. I also laughed a little bit when you said it because the ideas of courting and dating are such like old-fashioned like ideas that I don't even hear them talked about anymore. And so right. I love that you brought it into the here and now uh, with this fight with justice. That's really cool. Did you We're used to the swipe, swipe left or swipe <laughs> left, you know, and yeah. that's what we want to do. <laughs> yeah, you can't swipe right on justice. Let's take right. more work on that. Uh, how did your congregation receive that message? Of uh, justice not being selective? Mm -hmm. I actually preached uh, and used that kind of quote that I gave of justice being sexy. And I preached it on the text where the two of the disciples are wondering who's going to sit at the right and who's going to sit at the left of Jesus. And it was right at the time, it was the lectionary text that was for the Sunday, around the time when the caravan of immigrants coming from Central America was passing through Mexico. And the current president told the president of Mexico, all right, here are two ways that we can do this. One, you stop the caravan and I do right, quote unquote, right by your people in detention centers. Maybe I can free some. Or if you let those people come through your southern border, I'll take it on your people here in the United States. Wow. That was not broadcasted here in the United States, but that was the news in Mexico that there was a decision to be made. Mm. And I told them that sometimes to my congregation, that sometimes we get, we get so concerned about who's going to sit at the right or the left of Jesus when there are so many others that they do not even have chairs or a seat at the table. 
And sometimes it's even ourselves. Our own people are fighting for the place that we already have. Like Jesus never said, oh, which one of you would sit at my right and which one of you would sit at my left? No, the people, the disciples came up with the question. It was their need of recognition, of privilege, of power. And all Jesus wanted is to sit at the table with everyone. To open, you know, and from my faith tradition, Christian faith tradition is that Jesus would open the realm of heaven to all. And yet we are wondering, should we pass and let these people and save ourselves or should we actually be against the thing that is putting us to make a choice mm. so the church the church appreciated it some of them found comfort especially my people from honduras their words were we're so proud that our church is taking a vocal stand then again when they would tell me those words and i'm like okay this is the church but you are the church so how are you going to take my words or the church's sermon or the church's words into an action? Like what can we do on a daily basis that reflects what we really experience at church? And that goes during that sermon. I even, you know, very quickly, because that's a taboo topic to talk about sexuality in many of black and brown congregations. Right. Yeah. And so I even mentioned it, like sometimes we get so concerned about who gets to love who and how is good to love who. And our own children are suffering of not being able to get a seat at the table. Pere, I love your vision and your prophetic voice. I'm just hearing themes across what you've been sharing with us today. And that's challenging the paradigm. You know, we're faced with a choice. Do we support our Black brothers and sisters, our Latinx brothers and sisters, our LGBTQ community? No. Why do we even choose? Love is love. And same thing that happens with the caravan and these choices that we are faced with day to day in an unjust system, in an unjust world. I just love the way that you think about it, the way you preach about it. And I imagine that would be unsettling for some. But this is what we need to hear because this is not the world we want to be living in. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for giving me the space to also broaden the message. Told you you were going to be famous. Um, <laughs> but I'm thinking about a conversation you and I had when we were catching up last week. And you were talking to me about a renewed emphasis on self-care in ways that you have changed up your routine so that you can actually be sustained in this season. And so I'm wondering if you're willing to share some of what you've changed in your routine in your day-to-day -day life that has helped and aided in your self-care uh, that's allowed you to continue on in this work. Yeah, I think that one of the major things that changed from my routine and my life was getting back on therapy having that support of a outside neutral perspective, non-religious, or I don't even know if my therapist is religious or not. Like, I, I don't know. But at least that, that unbiased and neutral perspective of someone that assists me in understanding my own story so that I don't get mingled in the stories of my people. Because for a person 
like me, speaking from my own experience, I consider myself to be a, an empathic person and a giver, a caring person. But that can be tricky. It's like in those work interviews when they say, what's your biggest fault? And I think that at some point, maybe being detail-oriented is such a good thing. It honestly is anxiety of failure. Like for me, and just even able to realize and say, let's stop romanticizing my anxiety and let me stop romanticizing and spiritualizing my call and my ministry and let me begin wearing my call and wearing my story and not let my call or my ministry wear me and wear me out, mm. which is hard. It's really hard. So as I was telling Ben, you know, sometimes I get calls at eight or so at night and I'm like, oh, so tempted to take the call. But then again, I'm thinking if it's something really important, they will leave me a message or shoot me a text and I'll get back to them. And so even fighting those urges, as I at some point said today, that need to be needed, which we romanticize with, oh, you do everything so exceptionally. Yeah, but maybe I do it so well so that people think no one can do it the way Pastor Betty does it. And then there is this codependency. So making sense of my own story has been, I think, the greatest change that I've done in my routine. Being intentional also about my day off and spending time with my spouse and realizing Clearly, we have had at this point six months of being 24 or seven. Uh, we're still together. So we have a dog now. <laughs> <laughs> it's no small thing. Right. But being willing and intentional about rest and even understanding this very Jewish idea of rest that we should not work so that we can rest but we rest so that we can work. And so being able to just work out of my rest, and that's been hard because culturally, I grew up in a family culture and a broad uh, Mexican culture of, as a woman especially, everyone first, then everyone, then everyone. And at the end, if there's anything left and no one else needs anything, then you. Mm. And so I think that those have been the major changes and being honest also with myself, being honest with my own needs, being honest with my spiritual needs and emotional needs and open, telling my board, hey, I'm in therapy because this is a lot. And because this is a lot, I need you all to help with this and this and this. And maybe inside I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it's not going to come out the same way that I planned it, but let it be. You know, I don't need to continue that codependency. Oh. Uh, yeah. I think those are the major things. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing those. One of the beautiful things that I've appreciated about having you on today is that, you know, while you're speaking a lot of the time to a very specific context, there are clear pieces of your experience that are almost universal, right? Like most pastors 
not just pastors, most spiritual leaders or leaders in general wrestle with kind of having firm boundaries, wrestle with self-care, wrestle with going to therapy or not, especially in, in black and brown communities or having their voice silenced as a woman. And so there, there are ways in which your narrative can speak to almost anybody that's listening. And I think that's beautiful. And so I appreciate you sharing that. As we wrap up, I want to invite you to speak to your community. And I'm using that term loosely intentionally. You can interpret it as to people in your congregation that may be listening, other Latinx pastors that may be listening, whoever you want to envision as your community. And imagine that they're hearing this at the start of 2021. What message do you want to convey to them as they continue to do the work of sustaining each other? I think that I would go back to the scripture when God says, it is no good for human beings to be alone. And that's right at the beginning of creation. We are meant to be with one another, to support one another, to name things together, to give purpose, just like Adam and Eve, you know, they were granted that responsibility. And, and that's what we are supposed to do. Hopefully this 2021 year, my community can understand that we cannot be isolated. As pastors, we cannot do it all for a community that has great, great needs. We need to start believing in synergy and start believing in the beauty that comes when we all members of different parts of the one body come together and work together as my people of faith or in the Latinx community, we cannot do it alone. We cannot survive isolating ourselves theologically, biblically, socially, religiously, whatever the way you guys want to put it. We cannot do it alone. We need to be in partnership and in community. And to the whole human race in society, we cannot do it alone. We need each other and, and we need to see each other as one. So hopefully this 2021 year can be the, the year that after all the craziness that we lived through 2020 in Mexico, they were saying that the Mayans, it was actually at not 2000, but it was a 20 and 20. So maybe this was the end of an era, not the earth, at least the end of an era in which isolation, individualism, and all those things that are actually white supremacy language concepts, we just break away from that and we start living in our God-given design of living in community. Thank you for that, Betty. That was a beautiful word. I appreciate you sharing that. In the interest of time, and I think we've already captured some amazing information from you, Betty, but um, I'm curious, do you have any resources that you'd like to share with some of our listeners whether it's good books that you're reading, organizations that you go to, or websites, whether it's justice-oriented, Latinx, or really just anything related to your congregation, Iglesia Hermandad Cristiana? Well, as part of our denomination, we are in covenant with the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. So if there are any disciples, ministers, or people Listening to this podcast, I would invite them and encourage them to go to reconciliationministry.org, which is the ministry that works for racial justice and to break down the walls that separate us within the church. I would also invite to visit the Equal Justice Initiative website, 
to just learn. There are so many things that we can learn. And actually, I'm reading also this book, An African-American and Latinx History of the United States by Paul Ortiz. Hmm. Mind-blowing. It's wow. so good. And to see the intersection, how we've really won, how we've really been struggling with the same things and how the empire of the United States politics has been involved in so many of our struggles. And so just getting educated. Um, oh, gosh, I should have been more prepared about these resources lists. I know that you guys do resources. I should have known. But... Honestly, you also get connected with your local chapters of Fight for Justice. Here in Indianapolis is Indy 10, Black Lives Matter, and just getting connected to people. And maybe the greatest resource that I always point people to is curiosity. We all have it. Just use it and use it well, and you will never be let down. Thank you. Yeah. If people want to connect with your congregation or connect with you online, what are the best ways they can do that? They can look us up online. Our website is iglesiahermandad.org. And we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So just type our name, Iglesia Hermandad Cristiana, and you'll be directed to our profiles. Awesome. And will you all be joining TikTok anytime soon, or is that kind of off the table? I think that that's off the table because... I'm it at the <laughs> church right now. And so, yeah, no, that's, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Thank you so much, Bede, for joining us today and for the wisdom that you brought into this interview. I've been blessed by you. I'm sure my colleagues have as well. And I know that our listeners will appreciate the insight that you're going to bring to their lives. So thank you again for your time and your space today. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity and for the listeners to listen and put up with me today. <laughs> All right, Betty, you take care. All right, you too. So that interview was chock full of a lot of good things. I'm wondering what resonated with you most, Matt. Yeah, one of the things that struck me the most was her story about just how much she has to walk alongside her community as they encounter just day-to-day kinds of things. And I know and have worked with lots of congregational leaders, lots of pastors, lots of clergy, and just seeing the burden of what it takes to run a congregation week in, week out, even without that element of it. And I'm really glad that we talked at the end about self-care and that she exhibited or talked about some of her self-care practices because it's just, it's tough to imagine the responsibility of shepherding a congregation in a situation like that and needing to be present for so many things. Yeah, and I'm glad that there are folks within her congregation that will also step up when she has other commitments or just isn't able to be there. It speaks to the strength of that community, I think, which is phenomenal. I noted she shared a story about when she goes into the hospital, for instance, the difference in treatment that she receives when she has her clergy attire on versus when she's just in typical street clothes. And that really stood out to me because it speaks to the existence of systemic racism in really subtle ways, uh, maybe even sexism also, because, you know, she also mentioned being a woman is affecting her treatment. And I just wondered how many other female clergy leaders, clergy leaders of color, 
have similar experiences and they have to be mindful of of what symbols they're wearing to convey their right to be in a place, their right to advocate the way they need to advocate, their right to take up space in the way that they're supposed to take up space or that they need to take up space for their congregants. And just that that's another layer of responsibility and intentionality that she has to be aware of that others may not. And that really stood out to me. Yeah, it's been an interesting reflection for me that my son's elementary school is right down the street from us. And there have been a few times where beginning of the school year, he's a little nervous and wants me to walk him inside or for some reason I need to go in or even like maybe a couple weeks into the school year. And typically I'm dressed for work. And so I've got business casual or maybe even a tie. And it's interesting that no one ever questions my presence No one ever stops me at the door. Nobody ever asks me, can I help you, sir? And I can only imagine that if I were dressed in a different manner, uh, reflecting a different socioeconomic status, or if my skin color was different, how that might affect, you know, their perception of me walking into a school. And just it's one of the things that I'm trying to be cognizant of in paying attention to those kinds of things. And yeah, hearing her story and knowing that that story is not a unique story. It's a bit heartbreaking sometimes. And it reminds me, that personally, I need to get past the cultural signals of dress or other indicators of status, because it's not like you wear your PhD or your master's degree or even your bachelor's degree on your shirt. (laughs) You you have (laughs) no idea when you encounter someone, what their background is, what their education level, what their social, and not even that those things matter, but we just judge based on these signals, right? And just think that's a reminder, too, for congregational life of the people who walk into your congregation. You know, you kind of have a congregational dress code, and it's really probably not suits and ties so much anymore. Some places it might be. But, you know, people kind of meld into wearing similar kinds of things. And what if somebody walks in who looks different? And I can tell you from experience that if you walk in different from everyone else, you know that you look different. Oh, yeah. I mean, even just as a white male walking into a situation, there was a church in seminary that I walked into. I was wearing a tie and no one else was. And the pastor even said something from the pulpit, something negative about wearing ties. (laughs) I was like, (laughs) hang on a second. I'm wearing a tie and I'm new here, you know? Right. Uh, But just, you know, looking back to the basics of human hospitality, that from a Christian perspective, that we're all created in God's image, and that means we are due respect, and the same respect we would give anyone else, regardless of how they look, how they appear to us. They are a human being, and from a Christian background, I look at them as created in God's image, and the need to be daily and constantly reminded of that so that my prejudging doesn't kick into gear, and I begin to look at someone and assume that I know anything about who they are, or where they've come from, or what they're like. Yeah, and what does it then mean to practice hospitality? That's that's a central feature of many cultures. I don't know if it's as central to the dominant culture in the U.S., but it seems to be, I've got several friends that grew up in different parts of Africa, like Kenya or Nigeria, and for them coming up, hospitality was key. And I've learned a lot about hospitality from just experiencing it from them. And hearing about Bede's experience in healthcare settings made me wonder what it means or how to practice active hospitality in the context of my work environment or in the context of a local congregation. Like, what are the small, subtle signals, the ways that we communicate someone is welcome? Or what are the things in our environment, either the way we talk, the way we dress, the symbols on the walls of our congregations? What are those things that might be barriers to someone feeling welcome that we're just blind to because, to your point earlier, it's the water we swim in? So I think it just... 
there's a lot of nuance to making someone feel welcome. And I heard this conversation as an invitation to explore and interrogate that nuance so that we can be more hospitable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of a mission trip we took to the Dominican Republic and we worked with students at a, at a college there and they had a student facility. And when one of their students would walk in, pretty much most of the other students would get up, cross the room and hug them mm-hmm. every time they walked in. Mm-hmm. And we started incorporating that into our young adult group that when somebody walked in, you get up out of your chair, walk across the room, shake their hand. I mean, we, you know, you may want to want to throw hugs around as, as much in our culture sure. as in theirs. But the power of that, of genuinely showing someone you are welcome here, especially somebody new, right? Standing up, walking across the room and approaching them. Just a simple thing. But I think that's where our culture lacks in a lot of ways is with the simple things Mm. and being conscious of how those simple things communicate very strongly a lot about the type of community that you are. Yeah. Yeah. But it had some, some good one liners in there. And one of them that stood out for me was justice has become sexy, but no one wants to do the hard work of courting and dating. And I just loved that because it really painted a unique picture for me. We've all seen the people that have the yard signs talking about everyone's welcome here. You know, this is what we believe or congregations. But when it comes to actually thinking about, okay, what will it take to create a just community or a just society, right? That's a lot of hard work over a long length of time. And are we willing to commit our resources and energy and even money to that grunt work, to the dating and the courting of justice. And I just, I thought that was profound. How did it land with you? Yeah, I thought that was a really powerful statement and an apt statement. And one of the things that struck me was her busyness level in walking alongside her congregation members in navigating culture, the relationship that must be formed in the midst of that and how much time and how much conversation you get to have And it makes me reflect on being part of dominant culture that I don't need anybody to help me go to the doctor, go to the grocery store or anything like that. I'm, you know, quote, self-sufficient, end quote. Right. right. Uh, But that self-sufficiency puts up a barrier in relationship Mm. because I don't get in the car with somebody and go to the grocery store. And there's nothing to say I can't, right? So just carpool with somebody when you go to the grocery together, spend some time with them. But how the lack of difficulty in navigating culture in some ways is a downside because of our self-sufficiency, we're then separated from the people around us. I think the pandemic, as terrible as it's been, I'm hoping that people are developing deeper relationships through this as they're trying to navigate it together. I mean, I've reconnected with some old college friends and every Friday we get together on Zoom for hours at a time, you know, and I feel less lonely in the midst of the pandemic than I have in years. Mm. And that is such an interesting outcome. So just recognizing that we can take advantage of discomfort and it can actually be to our benefit because it can drive us to reach out to other people, to ask for help, to try to get together more. And that can be a really good thing. Yes. And and speaking of asking for help, you know, Betty mentioned that she was glad that she started going to therapy again. You know, and this is something that we've brought up several times throughout the course of this podcast that clergy leaders and others have talked about, you know, during a global pandemic, especially mental health, there's been a spotlight shown on it. But again, there was a quote that she had when talking about therapy that really jumped out at me. And she said, one of the things she appreciates about going to therapy is that it helps her understand her own story. And she said, understanding my own story so I don't get mingled in the story of my people. Mm. 
And I just really liked that. And I'm not even sure I can articulate all the reasons that stood out to me, but but I'm going to try. I think about the importance of knowing oneself in the story of your people, you know, whether you're black, white, Latinx, you know, wherever you come from, whoever you identify as your people, we all want to situate ourselves in the story of our people. And as a pastor, as a leader, trying to walk that line between healthy dependency and codependency with your congregation, I can also see why it's integral to that work and maintaining a healthy balance of knowing where the story of your people stops and your unique experience of that story, where your story begins. And I love that she utilizes and understands therapy as a way to see and feel out her own unique story. And I think we can all benefit from that kind of framework. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, not getting caught up in the identity of whatever group you're shepherding so much so that you lose your own unique personal identity and then you're not paying attention to your needs. You're not paying attention to your need for rest. You're not paying attention to your need for help. Yeah, that's a great, great reminder. Well, we hope you enjoyed the conversation with Pastor Bere Hilsoto as much as we did. And next up, we'll talk resources. We're back with resources. And Ben, what resources do you have based on our conversation with Betty? Today, I want to talk about the Neighborhood Christian Legal Clinic. This is a resource that I came across through my time at Christian Theological Seminary. And they're an organization that offers legal services that are largely uh, low cost. We have worked with them here at the Center for Congregations, worked with them as strong, but we have hosted education events that the legal clinic has spearheaded. And they offer a wide variety of services and information for those that are seeking to navigate legal issues related to immigration, homeless veterans, tax issues, and even foreclosure. And so regardless of what your legal issue is, but especially if you find yourself serving a congregation that may have a lot of immigrants or undocumented folks, or you yourself are undocumented and are wondering what your legal options are, this is an excellent resource. They do phone consultations, especially right now during the pandemic. And we'll also have the website posted in the show notes. You can check them out. They primarily serve Indiana residents right now, but they do have an office in Fort Wayne and in Indianapolis. And so I highly recommend at least giving them a call, learn more about their services and see how they might help you, if nothing else, gain more information on the issue that you're seeking to address. Yeah. And for those of you outside of Indiana who are listening, chances are there's an organization like this or other nonprofits or organizations that are very helpful. So for any question, issue, or problem that you encounter that you have no idea what to do, quick web search usually will be helpful in finding something in your city, something in your county that can help you address the issue that, uh, that it's been brought up. And they do also have a podcast. It's called the Courting Justice Podcast that they host. And so that might be another good resource to check out just to get general information about a variety of topics. So yeah, check out the Neighborhood Christian Legal Clinic. What do you have for us today, Matt? So a couple things, and this is going to be a little bit book heavy, but just know for any book that's out there, chances are if you go onto YouTube and type the author's name, you can get some talks by them. And I'd encourage you to do that. Just any books that we mentioned, because not everyone reads a lot of books, has time to read a lot of books. 
probably a lot of folks listening to the podcast have a stack of books on their desk and it may not be the most accessible thing for you, but you know, just trying to find other information or maybe even articles from the authors, there's good stuff out there that's a little shorter in form. But as we were talking about hospitality, it made me think of Dr. Christine Pohl. She was actually one of my professors at Asbury and she wrote a book called Making Room, Recovering Hospitality is a Christian Tradition. And it's a little bit older. It was written in 1999, but just knowing Dr. Pohl and knowing her focus on the ethics of hospitality, I know it's going to have some really good information in there about thinking about the practice of hospitality. And again, specifically from a Christian tradition. So if you're not from a Christian tradition, this book may not be for you, may not resonate with you. But those of you who are, I think you'll find Dr. Christine Pohl understandable and engaging in how she approaches this topic. Another resource I wanted to bring up was a guy by the name of Mark DeMoz. Mark DeMoz runs a multi-ethnic congregation in Arkansas, and he's very outspoken about issues of justice, issues of being a multi-ethnic congregation. So actually, there's quite a few books that he's written. I'll highlight one, Building a Healthy Multi-Ethnic Church, Mandate, Commitments, and Practices of a Diverse Congregation. And this also is from a Christian tradition, but I think even if you're not from a Christian tradition, you may find some good information in there because a lot of it is about how do you work together as a community that has diversity as a part of it. And so this is figuring out how to build that kind of community. And there's also something called the Mosaics Global Network, and that's M-O-S-A-I-X, Mosaics Global Network. And so it's a global network of congregations that are multi-ethnic and just dealing with the challenges and the opportunities that come with that. So if you already are a multi-ethnic congregation and aren't aware of that resource, that could be something really helpful to get connected with other congregations out there that also are multi-ethnic. One other thing that I'd want to highlight, something that I mentioned, is the book An African American and Latinx History of the United States. And this might be particularly useful for those that just want a deeper dive into understanding the historical and cultural context of Black and Latinx folks in the United States. So feel free to check out that book. Obviously, you can get it you know, anywhere books are sold. But again, it's written by Paul Ortiz, and it's called An African-American and Latinx History of the United States. It's a good work that will expand your perspective on history and thus be a gateway into cultural competency, eventually becoming more welcoming and active in issues of justice. Yeah, and I just want to reiterate what Bede said, that one of the most valuable resources you can have is curiosity. And I've found that true in all aspects of life, but specifically around cultural issues. Just being curious and trying to understand is such a powerful, powerful tool. So just to put that out there. Absolutely. So we appreciate you all joining us for each episode and listening to the guests that we have here. And we view you as sojourners on this journey together with us. And so we're so thankful that you're here with us. And we want to encourage you to continue to support our work by subscribing to this podcast. If you're listening on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating and review. Not just because we're phenomenal. We obviously are, but also because <laughs> that is the quickest way for new listeners to discover this podcast. And so take a moment, just leave us a quick five-star rating and review. That way other people can find the resources and the information that you have experienced to be so valuable. 
We also want to thank Jaden Lee, who's our editor of the podcast. And to highlight one of Jaden's traits, he's a very merciful man because we've been forgetting to thank him, but he has continued to edit the podcast, even though we've not mentioned him. So Jaden, thank you so much. Uh, we appreciate your work behind the scenes with the great music and uh, making us sound really good. <laughs> Absolutely. And as always, please take a moment to follow us on social media. You can find us at the Center for Congregations on Facebook and Instagram. We use our social media platforms to highlight congregational stories. That way you are aware of the good things that are happening across Indiana in congregational life. We highlight our education events so you know when you have additional learning opportunities coming up for the Center for Congregations. And we also use it to highlight different leaders and experts in the field so that you can be connected with the best resources to meet the needs of your congregation. Yeah, and we'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us at podcast at centerforcongregations.org, something that Ben and I both have access to, and we would love to hear from you. Thoughts on previous episodes, resources that you have to share on these topics, or maybe an idea for a future episode. We would definitely love to hear from you. Absolutely. So once again, thank you so much for listening to the Center for Congregations podcast. Until next time, I'm Ben Tapper. And I'm Matt Burke.